Okay, brethren. Well, before I get started, I just wanted to remind everybody to turn off their telephones so that the government can continue to listen. <laughs> you know, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. I mean, the fact of it is now, I never in my lifetime would have thought I could say such a thing because that's always been, let's face it, 10, 15 years ago, rendered into the category of conspiratorial talk and jargon, if you know what I'm saying. Today, brethren, it's a proven fact. It's a proven fact. They are indeed listening, whether it's be through your TV, your Samsung. If you're on the Internet, they can listen, they can watch. I mean, it's just, uh, just amazing, and yet... Uh, uh, just, um, as I say, kind of scary in some regards. 1984, that book kind of brings back to my mind a long time ago that perhaps some of you have read that the government, uh, you know, is watching and listening to you and how it was so tyrannical in that book as it was characterized. But that's not my subject. <laughs> that is not my subject. What I want to talk about, actually, is something that's obviously all on our minds, and that is the holy days that are coming up on us. These holy days, brethren, are very, very rich in meaning, extremely rich in meaning. And when you begin to understand and grasp the deep, rich meanings of all of them, but specifically for my discussion today, let's focus on the spring holy days. It is truly an enhancing bit of information you can have in your mind as you embrace the meanings of these particular Days, And I'm talking about Passover, of course, commencing with that. I'm talking about the days of unleavened bread, and I will include Pentecost. Now, why would I include Pentecost? Turn with me over here to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, because it's an important connection, I think all of us need to make and understand these spring Holy days are very interrelated, interconnected with deep, rich reason for them to have. And once we begin to see it, I think we'll begin to understand how important it is for us to be aware of this, especially as we commence into, commence into the Passover season. And of course, as I say, actually it's a harvest season. If you want to really talk about it, it's really a harvest season of which you put in the three dots, Passover, unleavened bread, and Pentecost. And in all due respect, that rich meaning has a lot of correlation to the reproductive plan of what God is doing in harvesting human beings. That's, that's the facsimile. That's the overlay of what is happening. But here I want to show you the connection between the early holy days, that of Passover and unleavened bread with Pentecost. It says here over in verse 9, And the Lord spoke after, as you would take time to read about Passover and the 14th and unleavened bread commencing seven days and so on. Uh, it says here in verse 9, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, and you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits. That's a little small representation of that barley harvest. That was kind of the first harvest there that was in the early, early spring. Uh, he says here, you shall bring a little representation of that harvest unto you, and you shall wave it as a representation, as an acceptance before the Lord, to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I could speak on the wave sheaf for the next 
40 minutes or so, but I do want to, in passing, just mention this. It is quite clear, is it not? You don't know what Sabbath is being talked about here. Fair statement? Of course it's a fair statement. It's not identified. Some people count starting from the day after the first day of unleavened bread. They start their count after the first day of unleavened bread. It was a harvest holy day. It depended on the amount of food that was growing up and so on. Even the first month is called abib, green ears. When you see it, that's why it's called abib, because it's green ears. It starts the harvest season. The reality of it is here is because it was a harvest and tied to the harvest holy days, Frankly, you don't know what Sabbath to start counting from. Whether it's after the first day of unleavened bread, which would put you on Pentecost at Sivan 6, or after the last day of unleavened bread, outside of the unleavened bread. But the fact of it is, here's the short and sweet answer to all of this. Once you begin to recognize and connect the fact that Jesus Christ was killed on the 14th of Nisan, or Abib, and consequently was in the grave from a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and resurrected late on a Saturday and ascended to the Father on the day after the weekly Sabbath, boom, you're connected. Now you know what Sabbath to count from. Why? Because Pentecost is connected to the affirmation and confirmation that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the Savior of humankind. And this connects that truth. This connects that teaching with Christ of whom you have given your life to and for. And that's important to recognize in this particular case because in doing this, it goes without saying, brethren, this generates a whole different paradigm of outlook in your life. There is, as I said, deep, rich meaning, metaphorically, figuratively, spiritually, in these holy days. Very much so. Very much so. And when you begin to understand the broad, comprehensive scope of Passover to Pentecost and how they're all interrelated because you count 50, do you not, to Pentecost from the day after the Sabbath. They're connected. I don't have the time to go through all of that, but you read down 9 through about uh, 16, you'll get the story of the fact of how Pentecost is connected to the days of unleavened bread and consequently to Passover, of which confirms Christ's Messiahship and the authority that comes with him being the firstborn of the firstfruits. Imagine that. Imagine that, the firstborn of the firstfruits. He was the wave sheaf of humanity who ascended to the Father on a Sunday, came back that same night and showed himself walking into a room. Boop, there he was, doors being shut. And he came in like, beam me up, Scotty, and just materialized, shook the daylights out of everybody that was in the room. Thomas wasn't there. But he did the same thing to Thomas eight days later. You know the story and the scriptures that are associated there. And John, it's a great story. The reality of what Jesus showed in his post-resurrection ministry, of which I often coined as the I told you so ministry, where he went around for 40 days and said, I told you so, I told you so, uh, was basically a tremendous, tremendous encouragement, inspiration, and, 
and what you could say motivational experience for all of those guys to the point where they, many of them gave their lives up for it. But it does present, that is, once you comprehend the connection of these spring holy days together to the fact that you and I are in a marathon race. We're not in a sprint, brethren. And it's important that you recognize you're not in a sprint. You are in a race. But you are in a marathon race that requires managed pace. That requires tremendous patience. That's why Jesus told us there to possess your soul. Possess your self in patience. Don't be impatient with your life. Don't be impatient in the things that you contend with through, throughout your life. But it is important that we understand that we are in a race. Turn with me over here to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. <clears throat> and again, excuse me. I'll probably be doing that uh, for quite a while. So I'll just say, excuse me. And so when I cough, I don't have to keep saying that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here in uh, chapter 12 and in the uh, book of Hebrews, verse 1, we read this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us. Lay it aside. Stop it. If you think you're going to run a marathon race with a backpack on your back, you're just making it hard on yourself. You've got to take the backpack, all the baggage that you've had throughout your life, because guess what? We're all sinners. We're all in recovery. We all have baggage that we've got to get rid of, discard, lay to the side, and be different so that you can run the race and be able to, very important, brethren, not necessarily win the race in this context, but finish it. Finish it. When a person trains for a marathon, do you know they're not really training to win? A marathon is roughly, I think, as I understand it, about a 26-mile run. Originally, the or origin of uh, the marathon, I don't know if you know this or not, about 490 B.C. or so, a, I think it was a Greek soldier ran four times between the cities of Marathon and Athens back and forth, sending reports to the generals that he had regarding the uh, advancements and uh, victories of uh, the Greeks over the Persians. And uh, on his last trip, he dropped dead. <laughs> he died. His he was 22 miles each time, back and forth, about 22 miles. I don't know where they got the 26-mile uh, marathon number, but today it's, I think, 26 miles. His was about 22 miles. But the fact of it is, in doing this, that is a marathon race, you understand here that you don't want to be carrying <clears throat> extra baggage. So we go on here, which does so easily beset us, and it does, brethren. If you're going to drag your baggage with you through this journey of attempting to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? As they would say, I'll be polite, you're spitting in the wind. You got to let that go. You got to let that go. It says here, so easily besets us and lets us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, over here in Philippians, I want to turn back there just real quickly as a substantiation to what we just read there by the writer in Hebrews and uh, mention this in passing. In chapter 1, if you'll turn with me real quickly because I'm really pressed for time here. I've got a lot of material to cover. Verse 29, for unto you it is given, that is you Christians, all of us brethren who are struggling and suffering in the sins of which we want to untangle from. And it is a life process. Paul says here, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And guess what? Untangling from sin is painful. Why do you think the Bible is so loaded with information regarding those who take up and bear this cross, figuratively speaking, of walking the journey with Christ is characterized so consistently with suffering? Suffer, suffer. Why? Untangling from sin is hard. And depending on the degree of damage... It can be extremely painful. The fight, I mentioned it in the article I just wrote in the international news with regards to transgenderism. The fight against the feelings, the inclinations, the pulls of being attracted to a man. Or to be confused about, well, I feel like a woman today. No, I don't. These are real. We can laugh, but these are real, bothersome annoyances. And yes, they are sometimes demon-vexed. Not saying always, because oftentimes we'd like to blame the devil made me do it, you know, how Flip Wilson used to say. Just to obfuscate our own accountability for what we allow in our lives because of our own lusts. But the fact of it is these are real Problems with people, whether it's smoking, overeating, too much of this and too much of that excess, we can list a whole litany of things we battle with that each of us has, as they've often said, our own demons. That's how oftentimes it's characterized. I say that only in jest, not meaning that all of our problems are come from demons. I don't want to be taken out of context, but I'm just saying in jest, we all have the differences of our problems and sins based on Our upbringing, broken homes, divorce, alcoholism, substance abuse, prostitution, pornography, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. I mean, I could go on and on and on, and we grow up with that victimized condition based on what was our problem, how we were treated by mom and dad, uncles and aunts, and so forth and so on, and we are who we are. Paul says, having the same conflict, and they are conflicts, which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It's so very important, brethren. I mentioned life is like a marathon, and it is truly, certainly a marathon. It is difficult. You're going to be going through life, and I guarantee if we use this metaphor, I run. I don't run marathons, (laughs) but I do run. 
I, I take baby steps. I'll run a mile if I feel good about it. I, maybe if I feel really good, I'll run two. I might even run three miles. But three miles is my, uh, my limit simply because I, I want to take it easy on my knees and take it easy on my ankles and so forth and so on. But I try to run about 10 miles or so at least a week. A week. Some guys and ladies run it in one time. Out. But here's my point. When I run three miles, I can tell you for sure that first mile is a piece of cake. When I run the second mile, it's a little bit more drudgery. When I'm running that third mile, it's a little bit different than the second mile. And I can just imagine what's downhill 20 miles later. You get my drift? Where you are now is not where you're going to be five years from now. Or you better not be in the same place. Or guess what you're not doing? You're not converting. Conversion demands. Conversion mandates results. You need to be different. If you're an angry person, you've got to get rid of the anger. If you're a vulgar person, I'll say it. I, I used to use the adjective, uh, you know, the F-bombs quite regularly. I admit it. I used to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. A day. I'll admit it. But you know what? You got to give that stuff up. You got to stop it. Somehow. And with Christ, believe this, all things are possible. All things, brethren, are indeed possible. But it's very important here that we understand something. In John 15, you'll be hearing this, I'm sure, throughout the course of the season here in the spring holy days, that this is tantamount. This is tantamount for you to get your arms around this concept because God has expectations on all of us. We are bound to the fact that, yes, we admit that we have baggage from our sinful ways. It is now due upon us to exercise the effort to depart, detach, eschew those old ways and begin to, verse 5, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, I'm the true vine, my father's the husband, Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Every branch that hears, uh, bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in, of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. Herein, verse 8, herein, for the sake of time, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit? If you do that, he says, Jesus' words, so shall you be my disciples. And in many cases, or you can make the case, but that doesn't only mean in characteristics. How are you spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own personal lives? Is anybody in this room here because of your involvement? 
Are you bearing fruit in that regard by going out there and sharing this life-saving lottery ticket that you have? (laughs) You've got the best information in the world and the church needs to get mobilized. With all of the social mediums that we have today, brethren, spread it. The Church of God International and other organizations within the culture of the churches of God because the Church of God International does not in any way, shape, or form present itself or even think itself as the only work of God on earth. So my point, you have access to a tremendous amount of truth, of truth, and of which can be very helpful to others that you see who are suffering in the pain of their own sins due to the fact of their lack of knowledge and information and know-how on how to counter-attack, how to be counter-intuitive to what they're experiencing, contending with, and conflicted with. Help out. Think, how can I help this person? You're a Christian. How can I help? What can I do? Well, I've got Twitter. I think I'll share this. Oh, I've got a Facebook. I think I'll post that. Share it. Advance it. Do what you can, brethren, to do what the work of, of God is, which we see here in the objective, as Jesus states in chapter uh, 15, with regard to uh, our responsibilities respecting the effort of building and garnering fruit in our lives. So, my point is, though, in this, using this metaphor of the marathon, what is it that we can learn? Because I really haven't told you what I want to talk about yet. <laughs> i just kind of been preambling here and setting my stage. But I do want to leave you with some substance, some substance on how to help yourself through some of these things in understanding the preparation necessary for Passover. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'd like to turn back your attention over here. And in verse 24, Paul goes back to this metaphor of this race that we're running. He says, Know you not that they which run in a race run all, But one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. And as you see, in the context of running this race, this marathon, and I want to emphasize marathon, it's not a sprint. You're going to have peaks and valleys in your Christian walk. Things are going to go good for you for a while, and things can definitely, as they would say, go south on you for a while. You will find that God will reveal certain things to you in the course of this journey that you were totally unaware of about yourself because he's a good coach. He throttles revelations about you to you. And they may come through multiple sources, whether they be friends, acquaintances, colleagues, and or, I hope, And if you're not doing this, certainly you're doing yourself a disservice as a Christian through study and self-reflection, time with the Lord, quiet time, unplugged from the phone, unplugged from the computer, 
turn it off the TV and just study. Putting this together, I had to study for a few hours to put these thoughts down, to try to figure out what would be interesting to teach or use to teach and to help impart something of value to these minds that God is working with. And it is a great privilege, brethren, a tremendous privilege. I've said this over and over on all of the trips that I, that I participate in. A privilege, tremendous privilege to be able to speak to God's people. Minds where the Holy Spirit resides and has you begotten, reserved unto a resurrection. And you come here for a few hours for fellowship, of course, and to hear certain ones babble about God's truth. Hoping, God willing, that each one of us ministers who do what we can do will come up with something that, God willing, you can latch on to and hopefully help you in your walk with Christ because that's what we are. We're just helpers, hopefully, of your joy. And it's difficult. It's difficult. We need to study. If I didn't study, if you didn't study, certainly we would be selling ourselves short. Paul says, as he continues in this narrative, in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 9, every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. He takes his time. He's strategic. He takes time to assess and evaluate. What's, what am I doing here? Why did I say that? Why am I feeling this way? What triggered me to be in this mood? Is it something that did trigger me, that I'm actually conflicted with or confronting? Or is it just me? It's in the air. Vexations. Imaginative thoughts. How can I fight some of this stuff? To level myself out. To flatten the playing field. So that I can have a chance to be temperate. And logically evaluate and assess as opposed to emotionally reacting to something. Emotions, brethren, can be some of the worst things we can allow ourselves to be carried away with. Why do I say that? People get married because they get emotionally twitterpated. Children marry children when they're not even anywhere near responsible. Having children of which then those children grow up in disabled environments, of which adds baggage to them as time goes on. Frankly, speaking openly, candidly, some people should just not get married or certainly wait for a few years. Get a job. Get yourself settled. Be able to afford something to provide the woman. Guys, And ladies, have your feelings settled. Know what you like. Know what you don't like. But that's another story. I digress. (laughs) The, The fact of it is, Paul continues on. I therefore so run, he says here. I therefore so run. Or let me go back. Now they, verse 25, do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but you an incorruptible crown. Verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. I know I have, because I've got faith, that a promise is promised to me that is priceless. Spirit life in the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning with Christ. 
as kings and priests in the world tomorrow, you know, in the millennium and what it represents and all those things in preparatory to what? The great last day of which at that time a new heaven and a new earth and the Father coming to earth to dwell with mankind and Katie bar the door only God knows thereafter. What a future! And it's yours! Mine! Yours! It's all of ours. If we'll just take the time, the opportunity to exercise what is so important in the endeavor that we're involved with here and this marathon race that we're all now participating in. Verse 27, but I keep under my body, bring it into, and this Greek word could actually be construed slavery. I bring myself into a slave mode. In other words, I am not going to allow myself to get away from myself. (laughs) I am going to control my temper. I am going to control my approach. I am going to think before I make a decision. I'm not going to base my decisions on feelings. I don't make a determination on what bathroom to use based on my feelings. I use my head and I say, I'm a boy. I go into men's room. That's simple. If I'm Young, I don't have a job, I have no money. Guess what? I have a girlfriend. Don't propose yet. Wait. Get yourself through college. Pay maybe even some of the bills down. Stay steady. But don't go out and start proposing when you're not prepared for things. Think. Don't make premature mistakes based on emotion. That's a dangerous move, a very dangerous move, and oftentimes doesn't always end well. So Paul says here, I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself am a reprobate. That's, that would be a better word than castaway, meaning hypocrite, of course, void of judgment. Here I am up here doing what I'm doing, and, you know, I'm, I'm still beating the cat and kicking the wife and doing all kinds of things, figuratively speaking. <laughs> you know, but you get my, my drift. I'm trying. Am I perfect? No. Do I have my problems? Absolutely. But can I stand up here after 40-some years of walking with Jesus Christ and say, guess what, I'm not doing certain things that I used to do back when I was 19 and 20 and 21? Absolutely. I've made a little progress, <laughs> as I would hope you have, and you, all of us, in time. Be patient. Let God have his way with you and get out of his way. Stop insisting to have your way. The sooner, the sooner you make a commitment that I'm not going to serve the idols in my life, which are those things you can't control, the things that you're allowing your slave to get away with with you, the things that you're not bringing in subjection unto you through Christ, those things the sooner you get your hands around that and stop those things from manipulating you and controlling you, the better off you'll be, the more progress you'll make. Faster, faster progress you'll make. So, how do we do this? Ah, this is what I want to talk about. I have a few points I want to leave with all of you. And today, hopefully, we'll get through them very quickly here. One, Remain motivated. Over here in 1 Peter chapter 4, let's go there. I hope you've got your Bibles greased because we're going to go through quite a few scriptures. Verse 1, chapter 4, 1 Peter, to the point, stay motivated. 
Why? Here it is. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, this goes to that point that I was talking to you about with regards to suffering, the Christian walk, the Christian way, bank on it. You're going to suffer in it. You will suffer in it. Why? Because guess what? Peter's going to answer it here for you. Look at this. For in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise, like Christ was, with the same mind. And let me stop there just for a moment and interject something here. Don't think for a moment that if Jesus was indeed human, and he was, he was incarnate, Jesus was incarnate, he had the same battles of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes and the, uh, the, the lust of the heart and so on, you know, the feelings and, and the, the cares of the world that came upon him. I mean, he worked, he was a carpenter, he had family, he had half-brothers and sisters, he lived with his mother Mary and his father, not his father, but his stepfather Joseph for a while until we don't know what happened to him. But the point of it is, he had pretty much a normal life like a human being. We're told in Hebrews, he did not take on the nature of angels. He took on the nature of Abraham. That's a metaphor. That's a figure of speech to let you know that he was human. Which means he suffered. Don't you think he was attracted to women if he was a heterosexual man? Don't you think that maybe he liked some food that he really liked and maybe would like to overeat or eat too much of it all the time (laughs) because he liked it so much? Don't you think that he'd like to have had more money, perhaps? That lusts and certain things and desires for him to improve his family's situation? You don't think he battled those things? You don't think he suffered from, stop it, I can't think about that. Suffering through those things? If he didn't, you don't have a savior. If he didn't, he cannot be sensitive to what you're going through because he doesn't understand it. If he had a cakewalk while he was incarnate for 33 and a half years down here, guess what? We don't have a Savior that can be touched with our infirmities, of which the Bible says he can be. So guess what? He was. He suffered. And that's why it says here, put on the same mind. He says, arm yourselves likewise. Likewise means the same. With the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh, look at this, has ceased from sin. My point in the article that I wrote on the transgender revolution I mentioned a statement in there that when you sense this dysphoria, confusion about what gender you may be, and if any are battling this, you know what I say? I say, embrace it. Now, some people say, what are you saying? I'm saying, embrace it and recognize the resistance The confusion, the dysphoria is normal. It's natural. But understand, saddle in, buckle in for the fight. Don't give in to it. Resist it. And understand, that's normal to to feel the dysphoria, the confusion, the why am I thinking this? Why do I do that? Why am I attracted to him? I'm a man. Why is that? And I'm just using this as a, as a form to illustrate to you that the confusion and the discomfort and the recognition of this is dysphoric in its orientation to my psyche is normal. That's a good thing. Now fight it. That's your cross to bear. Stay motivated. Stay motivated 
and put on, as you will see here, the armor of God. But it does bring us to point two. And point two is remain in training. Go over here to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I won't be able to read all of it, but I do want to read some of it. Verse 8, yea, verse 8, chapter 3, book of Philippians. Doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. My brethren, understand Jesus and what Paul is saying here, and Paul was a well-educated guy. He's saying everything I've learned, everything that I have been told is worthless to win Christ. The psychology, the, the advice that one gets about committing adultery to help your marriage in this secular world that we have that some counselors will counsel people to do. The fact of, well, just go with your inclination. Give in and concede to your feelings of whatever dysphoria that you might be experiencing because far be it from any of us to prevent you from doing what you want to do even if it's causing you confusion and conflict. Embrace that. That's what a lot of people misinterpret. They say embrace it with reference to conceding. I'm saying Recognize it for what it is. It's healthy, but it's wrong. Now buckle in and fight it because at least now you know who the enemy is and when and what may even be your triggers. Stay away from those triggers. The way I stopped smoking, I just stopped buying them. That was one of my steps. I committed to the fact, I'm going to not buy cigarettes anymore. I'm going to continue to borrow them from my buddies. And then when my buddy says, look, buy your own pack already, you know? I'm not giving you any more. And I embarrassed myself. <laughs> I said, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> you know? But the reality of it is, we've got to take steps, whatever that step is, whatever that strategy is, whatever the concept is to go ahead and engage in that will help us to proceed through a necessary hoop required to overcome, then brethren, guess what? It won't start without you taking that first step and implementing the Spirit of God in you to give you the strength, the confidence to do what's necessary to accomplish the results that you're looking for. And here Paul says, look, one thing, certain step is give up everything you think you thought you knew and get your head into the Bible and understand here's the answers. Here's where the solutions lie, right here between Genesis and Revelation. It says here in 2 Corinthians, look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. Let's go back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Very appropriate for this time because that's what we're talking about here. This will put it all in one little nice package right here in verse 5, chapter 13, 2 Corinthians. You know the scripture. Examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know you not? your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you're reprobate. In other words, if you're acting mindlessly, if you're still acting on your own terms, appeasing your own lusts, desiring your own way over what you know, what you know to be better, you know it's better, you know what you're doing is wrong. How silly. What Paul is saying here, examine yourselves, focus on it, and get rid of it. 
no matter how hard it is, suck it up. Saddle in. Buckle down. Move out. And get with the race. Get back in the pace. Don't sprint. Find your pace. Find your way through the maze and obstacles of this marathon that you're on. So, stay motivated. Keep in training. Hebrews chapter 4. This is that second point. Stay in training. Hebrews 4. Real quickly here. Verse 12. He says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The heart is deceitful above all things. We are the masters of rationalizing. We are the masters of excusing ourselves. Well, I deserve a break. You know, and proceed to go off the rails into our terms and what we want to do, again, allowing the idols in our lives to get the best of us. So important, brethren, that we do not do that. Which brings us to the third point properly equip yourself. How do you do that? You know it. I'm not going to turn there, I'm just blitzing right through this point three, but you know it. Ephesians chapter six put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because your fight, it's also in that section of Scripture there in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. You can read it there in verses roughly about 10 through about 18 where you're told that your fight, your battle is not against flesh and blood. You wonder sometimes where moods come and, and you're doing perfect, you're doing fine. All of a sudden a thought comes into your mind. All of a sudden a mood comes up on you. Yeah, maybe you're having a sugar, low sugar moment. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're having a high sugar moment. Yeah, you know, maybe some guy did cut in front of you and did provoke some kind of behavior. But the fact of it is, don't kid yourself, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against me. My battle is not against you. Our battle is against spirits in high places. Who, indeed, have you and I targeted? We are, indeed, targeted. And therein lies the fourth point. Because you are in competition with Satan, the devil, who is your competitor. He wants you to trip up on this race. He wants you to fall in that pothole that he knows is up ahead. He wants you to not be able to jump over the tree that's in your path that he knows is around the next corner. He knows that there's something that he's got to figure out before you hit the dirt, figuratively speaking, die, before you die and get taken out of this life so that he can disqualify you from this prize of which God, the Father, through Christ, has promised you. He is dead set on tackling you and preventing you from crossing the finish line. You've got a competitor, brethren, and don't think for a moment that you indeed are not a target because you are. Turn with me over here to Matthew chapter 22. I think we need to drive this point home with respect to this particular point. It's essentially the story about the marriage feast. 
I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but you basically know the story. I'll paraphrase it, verses uh, 1 through about 14 uh, in chapter 22 of the book of Matthew. I'll just mention it for the sake of time, the fact of here you have this king. He goes out and essentially offers uh, an invitation to a whole bunch of people, but people actually reject him. Over here in verse 5, it says they made light of it, went their ways. One his, had his farm, another had his merchandise. A remnant took servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. In other words, they went on with their life. God was calling. Maybe, maybe they even, I'll even take this, the liberty of saying, maybe they even warmed a chair here for a while in the church services. Maybe they even tried for a while to go ahead and follow Jesus Christ. But the fact of it was they were just playing the role of a hypocrite because all along they weren't willing to give up anything and suffer through the dysphoria that comes with the attempt of untangling oneself from sin. That in itself creates confusion because you're going out of your comfort level. You're going into a different, undefined, or as they would say, ever hear this term? Uncharted waters. <laughs> You're in uncharted waters. I've never been like this before in my life. <laughs> this is new to me. I'm, some people get afraid. They like their comfort zones. In psychology books, people gravitate, default to their comfort zones. That's why they repeat cycles. They stay in the same pattern, repeat cycles, and never break a cycle. I come from a long history of alcohol abuse, my family. Guess what? Thank God, I praise God, I stand before all of you that I broke the cycle. Why did I break the cycle? Jesus Christ, my Lord, who lives in me, didn't allow me to default to the training I was given by people in my family and generations before them that consistently had that problem with alcohol. Praise God. Not by my works, but by His power. We can do these things, brethren. We can break cycles. We can help our families to change and be different, drawing the lines in the sand and becoming different in terms of how we proceed. This parable teaches us the fact that he went out, the king did, verse 9, and he went to the highways and the byways to find others to bid, and he brought them in. He said unto him, friend, verse 12, how can uh, come you in here after he went out and got the second batch of people, and you come in here, you come in here, and you're not dressed right, figuratively speaking. You don't have the right attitude. You don't have the right spirit. You don't have the right outlook. You don't have the right sense of commitment. You're not really dedicated. You're still insisting on doing your own thing. You're still doing what you want to do. It's on your terms. Even though you hear this, that, and the other thing, the fact of it is, guess what? You're not, do you're not converting. You're not moving from left to the right. No pun intended. I know some of you might get a little political on that. <laughs> but the bottom line is, the bottom line is, in this particular case, look what, the, what uh, Jesus says in this parable. He says, verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, verse 13, Bind them in hand and foot, throw them out, get them out of here. Weep and gnashing of teeth, get them out of here. He's a player. Point. Underline this in your Bibles. You should make this very, very cogent to you and to me. I apply it to myself. Many are called, brethren. Few are really in the race. How many of us in this room are converted? I hope all of us. How many of you out there are converted? I hope all of you. But the truth of it is, many are called. Few are chosen. 
It's important, brethren. We get serious, so we move into that group. That is indeed the chosen. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss it. This is the greatest show on earth with the greatest prizes for you and for me to be able to obtain spirit life, immortality, to be an immortal born son of God in the family of God. I'll tell you what, when those 12 apostles saw what Jesus did in those 40 days that he walked among them, disappearing, reappearing, traveling at the speed of thought, cooking and eating, even though he was a spirit being and talking and they could understand him and recognize him and so forth as he materialized going from what appeared to be a human visage to an invisible visage, a spirit visage. I mean, they were lit up. (laughs) I mean, you couldn't take nothing. They were willing to die for it. It was amazing. It was amazing. They were excited. They couldn't believe it. And Jesus kept telling them, this is for you. This is for you. It's for you. I've come. I've overcome the world. Be happy. Be of good cheer. Remember you said that? Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I've done it for you. The, way's bla- the trail has been blazed now. So be cool. Relax. It's all done in that respect. So, but here's my point in all of this. And in verse tw- uh, chapter 24... In Matthew, same book, Matthew 24, turning here, it's important we get this fixed in our minds. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So there goes to this point. Look, it's all about finishing the marathon. We must finish the race. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter if we come in ahead of so-and-so. You're not competing against yourself. Your only competitor on the field is Satan the devil. When I go bowling with my seven-year-old grandson, Preston, we go bowling, and we've got, we've got now, he, he'll say occasionally, you're going to beat me again, Papa. And I keep telling him, no, 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 no. Look, it's not about me against you. My high game is X. Your high game is X. We're playing against the high game. You've got to beat the high game, Preston. Set your goals. Beat your high number. I think his high number is 113. I won't tell you what mine is. But his number is 113. So when we go to the bowling alley, it's not a matter of him competing against me. It's not fair. I'm older than him. But it is realistic because he did bowl that 113 at one time. So he competes against himself in that regard. Brethren, that's the race you're in. Finish the race. Finish the race. Get your eyes off of each other. Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Why? Because my gifts are different than yours. Your gifts are different than mine. Everybody's gifts are different. My talents are this way, and they may be inadequate compared to your talents in a particular context. But the reality of it is, I'm not everything to everybody, nor are you everything to everybody. We have to appreciate the differences of each other. We appreciate color. We appreciate the differences of races. We understand that there's really only one race, right? In the church of God, there's only one race, the human race. I'm sure you've heard that cliche. But the reality of it is, it's true. It's true. There is no Scythian. There is no Greek. There is no Jew. There's no racism. Shouldn't be. What, is all, what this is all about, brethren, is finishing the race. So keep in mind, you've got a competitor that's out there to take you out. Uh, one, the second last point, stay nourished. Keep yourself nourished. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Go there real quickly. Chapter 4. And in verse 16, we read this very quickly here. In chapter uh, 4, verse 16. 
For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And of course, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, you know that one. You're a living sacrifice. All things must be renewed. Do not become conformed to the world in which we live in. Don't let the world's noise distract you so much that it knocks you off your pace. Be careful. There are many distractions throughout the world. There's many things lurking in the bushes of life. And it's important you stay focused and keep your eyes out ahead and make sure you're looking at your peripheral. But figuratively speaking, you're on course, you're on track, and you're still running this marathon race because you're determined through this process of being motivated, trained, properly equipped, and knowing your competition, you're remaining firm in your nourishment, taking time to learn how to renew yourself. And then, of course, beware of the obstacles. And I want to turn your attention back now to Matthew, real quickly, Matthew chapter 13. I'm only going to reference this in passing. I'm not going to take a lot of time on it, but I do want to bring it to your attention. And that is the parable of the, of the sower. The parable of the sower gives you basically some interesting categories of conditions we as human beings should all be aware of as Christians. And it talks about distractions. It talks about how certain things come in our lives as human beings that derail us and that veer us off course. Here in Matthew 13, the parable is set in verses 1 through about 9. In verses 19 through 23, the parable is explained, the Bible interpreting itself. And in this particular case, it talks about a seed that fell by the wayside and uh, another one that uh, was uh, fallen in the, um, it says here in verse 21, uh, Stony places, verse 20, I'm sorry. Seed by the wayside, the second category was stony places. And the third one, it fell in among thorns. As you read down through there, you understand the description of what is being described as far as the conditions are concerned that took this seed out. And then, of course, it ends with, and then there's some seeds that do succeed and bring forth much, much harvest, which is the category that we all want certainly to be in. And that's the objective in, that, in this particular case. So what this is telling us is as you're in this run, when I run, and I run in different weather conditions, I love running in the rain. That's just a personal preference of mine. When I run in the rain, I got to look out for puddles. <laughs> I hate if I fall in a puddle, if I step in a puddle, then I got wet socks for the rest of the run. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that. So I look out for puddles. And when I see a puddle, I'm, I'm strategizing. I'm coming up on the puddle, and I see it's across the path. And I say, uh-oh, hmm, let's see. Where am I going? Left, right, over. I'm strategizing. I'm aware of the obstacles in front of me. Even deer, I run down in the woods. Even deer. Sometimes deer are along on the path, and I come running up on them. Usually they get out of the way. Then they look back at me. You know? <laughs> but the bottom line is be aware. That's what this, this is all about. Be aware of your obstacles, brethren, in this particular case. So be motivated. Stay firm on your training. Gear yourself to be more properly equipped. Beware of your competitor, Satan the devil. And stay nourished. Be committed to being nourished 
and always beware of your obstacles on the course. Passover is upon us. It's good to take some quiet time between now and then to get a bearing, brethren, a bearing on who you are and where you want to be at mile 10, at mile 11, at mile 15, at mile 20, at mile 65. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, brother? We got to get serious about what we're involved with and recognize with great appreciation what God is offering. And that's why you really do need to take the Passover because it will indeed help you.